This is what we were talking about last week. How can you be a modern-day Esther or Mordecai? And I, I think that's a, a great question to answer um, given the age we're living in. Would you agree with that? That, uh, that this is a season, if ever there were a season, at least in our history, in American history, where we need some, some Esthers and some Mordecais to, to uh, stand when they're called upon to stand. You remember... Uh, both of them were called upon uh, by God. Mordecai passed the message on to Esther, but it was a God thing. Uh, and uh, because they did, things changed. And so uh, never underestimate um, how God can use you uh, in your world, your culture. Uh, and you say, well, I don't have much culture. <laughs> well, you do. Ha everybody has a culture. Everybody has a sphere of influence, and sometimes you're, you're to be an Esther in just whatever that sphere is, or a Mordecai in whatever that is, and so we, that's what we talked about. Well, we led into chapter 7, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of move through this, and then I want to, uh, I want to do another thing where we're going to answer some questions. Look in verse uh, 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 1 of chapter 7. You, do you remember... Um, do you remember the last thing we knew about Haman? He was going to a feast that Esther had called him and the king to. Y'all remember that? And what did Haman think that feast was about? He thought it was about him. Uh, he thought, but, but at the end of our last session, he had been disillusioned because he had been to one feast, and at that first feast... Uh, he thought that he was going to be coronated. Remember the king talks to him about what should we do for someone who honors the king? And you remember that? And he says, oh, you ought to put the, the king's robe and the king's, uh, let him ride the king's horse and all of this kind of stuff. And the king said, that's a good idea. Uh, call Mordecai and bring him in. That's what we're going to do for him. And you remember it was a humiliation to Haman. He went back, he told his wife, he told his friends. And they said, this isn't good. That's a loose translation. It said, this isn't good for you. And that's how it ended. Look at verse 13 of chapter 6. And so Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men, his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. All right? Now look at verse 14. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Which feast is this? It's number two. All right? The second one. And so follow along. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the, on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, uh, the king again said to Esther, this is the second time, he said, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It should be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Now, remember, we've already talked about how favored Esther was uh, to the king, and that was a God thing, right? God had caused her to have this great favor. She was a beautiful woman. God gave her favor uh, to the king, and so uh, the king says to her, this is the second time he's asked her this same question. Uh, what is it that you want? He said, I'll give it to you, whatever it is, up to half of my kingdom. Uh, and so, um, verse 3, then Queen Esther answered 
Well, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people's for my request. Now, he, he doesn't yet understand what she's saying. She's saying, if, if that be the case, I want you to spare my life and the lives of my people. Uh, now, he, he didn't yet understand why she was making that request, but what she's really saying is the request involves not just this group of people, but it involves me because according to, listen, according to the law that had been signed in with the signet ring of the key, and it can't be, uh, uh, of the ring, it can't be revoked, all of the Jews would perish, and that would include Esther. So it's an odd kind of request at first, so that's what she says to him. Then uh, verse 4, she starts explaining, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be uh, killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now, by the way, verse 4 is considered by many scholars the most difficult verse in this entire book to translate to translate its meaning. And that's because it seems strange. What does Esther say? She says, now, I wouldn't be making this request. She says, I've been, uh, uh, me and my people have been designated to die. And she said, I wouldn't be making this request if we had just simply been sold to someone to be their slaves. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? Because you would think she would say, we don't want to go be slaves here. But she's, in other words, she, she's saying, uh, that wouldn't rise to the kind of level of a matter you would bring to the king. That, but then she points out, but she says, the fact is, this wouldn't be good for you economically, is most likely what she was talking about, that we would be sold as slaves, but it would have an impact on you. Look there again at the bottom. It says, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the kings. Now, I don't know. I, I think she's she's reeling him in a little bit too. You know, maybe there, but, but that's what she's saying. She said it, it wouldn't have risen to the level for us to bring the matter to the king had it not been for the fact. I think she's playing on his ego, and we've already seen that he had an ego. And she's saying, but man, this would be a great loss to you and to the kingdom and to the economy of the kingdom, that sort of thing. All right, because uh, the Jews were captives. Uh, there in, uh, to the Persians, right? They had great freedoms, but they were still considered a captive uh, people. All right. Are y'all with me? Okay, verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Now, this is the revelation. If you're taking notes, write that down. The revelation. This is a revelation because that's what she's given to him. In verse 3, if you're taking notes, put down the request. All right? What was the request? What's your request? The king asked her, what's your request? And so she gives the revelation. All right? Now, watch this. She's about to give the revelation. So the king gets it. He understands what's going on. And he says, who, who has done this? Who has sold you guys into... Uh, to, to death, to die. And, and uh, so, verse 6, and Esther said, a foe and an enemy. It's emphatic. And then she says, this wicked Haman. Haman is there. Now, you remember this feast? It's like the other one. 
the, the audience is pretty simple. It's Esther and Haman and the king. And she said, <laughs> he says, who has done this? Now, Haman already knew he had done that. Don't you imagine, Spud, when, when the king starts saying that? Who has done this? That Haman starts getting a little nervous. And then Esther says, this wicked Haman, he's the one that's done it. And then I bet, uh, I bet there wasn't enough Malocks in the country for Haman at that point. And uh, she calls him a foe and an enemy. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Uh, he, he knew his, his number had been dialed up. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So you got the picture? Haman, I mean, uh, uh, the king is so angry when he finds out that Haman has kind of pulled a, uh, tried to pull a quick one on him. He's so angry, he, he has to get up and take a walk. Have you ever been like that before? You think, I, I've got to just go, I've got to take a break. I can't, I can't, I, you know. And that's what he does. So the king gets up, he goes out into the garden of the palace. Haman stays behind, and he begins to beg Esther, spare my life. He knew that Esther could say, don't kill him. All right? But, and so he's begging Esther. He's begging her, please, you've got to save my life. Look what happens next. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman, he returned as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. All right, now look, look next. And the king said, "Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house?" And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now I'll tell you what, what that means. So you see that. So the king goes for a walk, right? He comes back in, and what does he think he sees? Huh? He sees Haman, and he thinks Haman is not begging for his life. He thinks, he's now assaulting my wife in front of me. And, and so it says, and as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. What do you think that means? They're going to hang him. And it like they put the hood over him. You're you're now a, a, a criminal. They put the hood on him, and uh, and by the way, most likely when uh, the king went into the garden to cool off, he also brought back with him some kingdom police. And it says so. He says, "Look at this in my own house." Now the dude he's he's done this deed to the people and to the queen, and now he's attacking her. He's assaulting her right in front of me. What he's really saying, this guy's a moron. But we know what he was really doing. He was pleading. He was so desperate for his life. He was pleading with Esther. It just looked like he was assaulting her. Look at verse 9. Then uh, Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. It's interesting. Mordecai reappears here. Remember early in this book when we studied uh, Mordecai's first encounter 
uh, with the king was he saved his life. This, has, this had nothing to do with, this is just who Mordecai was. He knew a plot, an inside plot was going to, uh, was to assassinate the king. He made that known and, well, okay. So he says, so this eunuch, Harbona, who serves the king, said, hey, <laughs> if you're talking about killing the dude, he said, there's a gala that's already been built. Uh, he, he said that was prepared for Mordecai because he was right. He said that gal has already been built. He tells the king that. And so the king says in verse 10, then hang him on it. He built it, hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. If you're taking notes, write the retribution. That was the retribution. Now, um, it's just one of those... Would that not be a good movie? I mean, that would be a good modern remake of a movie, would it not? I mean, tell that whole story about this, this wicked dude who was full of himself and, and his plot and how his plot backfired and, and how God was... Remember the theme? What, in fact, do you remember the, the major theme of this book? What? Anybody? Sovereignty of God, which means God is in control. And from start to finish in this book, God is in control. Now, it's just a fact. There's some other things I'll show you here. Well, let me go ahead and show you, and then I want to come back in. And Yeah, we're good on time. Move on into chapter 8. We haven't covered this many verses in the whole time, have we? In one setting. Okay, now look, now this is, okay, what, we, we continue on. Verse 1, on that day King, uh, day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So she reveals, you need to know, King, who Mordecai is to me. The king gave Esther uh, Haman's house. I guess that means he put his wife out on the street and, and his family, he had sons, we know that. But look, there is a lesson there. And that is, your actions rarely just affect you. Your actions rarely just affect you. And so, uh, uh, the king gives uh, Esther the house of Haman. And then Esther says, well, I need to let you know, you know who Mordecai is. He saved your life. He also saved the Jews, in effect. But... You need to know who he is to me. All right? Verse 2. Uh, and if you want to write your notes down and you want to continue in our outline, write the reward. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Right. And he gave, did you hear, he gave him his signet ring. Do y'all realize how important the signet ring was? Because we keep seeing that. We're going to see it again here in just a minute. We keep seeing the signet ring. Why was the signet ring so important? Okay, there, there was only one of them. Well, the king may have two. He may have had a couple of them. But, but there was only one kingly signet ring. Does that, does that make sense? And... and with that ring, 
you could make law. Because you could write up in, let's say you possess the ring, the signet ring. It may, be, it may be one of a couple, but they would have all been alike that the king had. And let's say he gave you one of them. Here's, here's my signet ring, which I think is most likely what he did. There's only one king's ring. So he gives one to Mordecai. And what that means is I'm empowering you. You have authority to, to make law. Because that, that ring was so important that if you had it, you could draft up anything you wanted to be law, and if you put the seal of your signet ring on there, the king's ring, it was a law. That's it. And by the way, the laws of the Medes and the Persians said that once a law has been enacted, it cannot be unacted. It doesn't matter what it is. Now keep that in mind because we've got a problem here. All right, so Haman's gone. But the law that Haman put in motion is still active. Right? You realize that? Because, and by the way, this was, I, I've told you before, this wasn't the sharpest king on the planet. Because earlier, when Haman comes and he does this snow job to the king about, uh, about these people who are rebellious to him, which wasn't true, it's was fabricated, and he says, I want to just, just get rid of them, let's just wipe them out. And so the king took off his signet ring, gave it to Haman. To, he said, you write the law up, here's, a, here's my ring, write whatever you need to do, and then imprint it with, with my seal, and it'll be done. All right? So according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, once a law had been enacted, it couldn't be revoked. Are y'all tracking with me? So Haman is dead, but the law that he enacted is still active. And what did that law say? The Jews have to die. The Jews have to die. So what's the solution to that? Well, let's just jump on down, because I kind of... Um, well, look at verse uh, 5. Uh, look at verse 3. <laughs> then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. Haman's gone, but his works are following after him. Another lesson, right? And uh, says in the plot that he has devised against the Jews. Verse 4, when king, the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, what have you learned? What does holding out the golden scepter mean? She's got permission to speak. Um, verse 5, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have, she uses this as a, this statement, if I have favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the uh, letters devised by Haman the Agite and the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, you have to understand, this isn't just what's going on right there. It, it, it covers the entire empire, all the provinces, okay? Verse 6, For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my, kind, uh, my kindred? 
Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Now watch this. Here it is. This is the redemption if you're taking notes. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Okay, you see what's going on now? So Esther comes and she pleads for the lives of the Jewish people. But there is a law that once it's enacted, it can't be revoked. So how did they get around it? What did they do? They wrote a new law. They just wrote another law. So they didn't revoke the other one. They wrote a new law that revoked the other law. And they use the king's ring again. You see that? Apparently, you take my ring. He says, here, take my ring. Write whatever you wish. And then seal it because a law that has been imprinted with the king's seal can't be revoked. So, so if that be the case, we'll do a new law. You decide however you want it to be worded. But it will have my imprint upon it. And therefore, it will undo or it will nullify the other law in effect in a, because the new law will take precedent it doesn't uh, it doesn't say the old law isn't uh, effective it just says the new law um, essentially changes um, the function of the old law so it's just a, a, a so uh, that's how they get around it they do a new law that trumps the old law and so they summoned all of the but here's the next problem this was scheduled, these, these executions had been scheduled all over the empire on a certain day, uh, actually like a year from when it had been enacted by Haman. So now they got another problem. If you read on, and we won't read all of that, but they call all of these, uh, for lack of a better term, dignitaries, politicians, and messengers and say, get the word out in all the provinces before they start killing people. And they had to go with haste, it says, just to make sure they got the messages, otherwise they these... The pro think about the remote provinces, if you don't get the message to them, well, people are going to die. And so say, get the word out uh, quickly. Now, remember, are they able to do that? The answer is yes. Why are they able to do that, class? Because God's in control. God's in control. He's still overseeing the process. Um. So verse 14, jump all the way over to verse 14. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Came from, that's the capital, that's where they are. Then look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, blue and white, with great golden, uh, a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen, purple and yeah, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Uh, if you go back, you see again some of the reward process that, that had been uh, given to Mordecai. And then verse 16 says, The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Write down the rejoicing. There was celebration. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, 
there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast, a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. <laughs> in our words, it became uh, politically correct to be a Jew in that moment. Look at what all the advantages that they're, they're celebrating. I want to be, I want to be one of, for fear of the Jews that fall on them. It's better for us to identify with them then maybe they'll take, maybe they'll get angry at us and take it out on us. So say, we want to be a Jew. Look at everything's working out for them. And so there's this great rejoicing across the empire by the Jews because God had spared. Now, here's what I want to I spend a little bit of time with you on in our, the remaining minutes that we have. And by the way, y'all just didn't imagine when you came in here tonight, we get through two whole chapters, did you? There's only a little bit left, and we'll do that in a, in, in a future session. But, but um, I, I wanted you to get that big picture because um, there's so many lessons in this book, aren't there? I mean, it's just, this book is just full uh, of lessons. And we see, again, the overarching thing of God's control, the process, but he uses something. And so what I want to do for a few minutes is I want to talk about some life-changing lessons, additional lessons that we, we pick up from uh, these two chapters, 7 and 8. And, and, and uh, so uh, the first, I think, uh, is that we see is what I would say that God, let me change this so you can see, God knows our predicament. doesn't matter where you are. God knows your predicament. Go to Psalms, if you will. Go over to the book of Psalms. You see the reference there, Psalm 56. Show you a verse. <clears throat> Look at verse 8 of Psalm 56. He says, You, that's God, have kept count of my tossings. That's disturbances, circumstances, Really, it's the idea. Have you ever laid in bed and tossed and turned all night? Anybody ever done that? Yeah. All of us, I guess, right? Look, he says, you have kept count of my tossings. <laughs> means the turmoil that I'm dealing with, whatever I'm going through. Um, put tears in your bottle. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now, here's what that verse is really telling us, that God knows our predicament. And sometimes, that's, that's important to understand. It. Look, if God knows how much you're tossing and turning and how many tears you, he's, he, he knows the tears and all of that is what the psalmist is saying. Listen, that, that brings comfort to us to know that whatever our predicament, God knows it. And you say, well, if he knows it, why didn't he do something? Oh, he's doing something. Do you know when God seems silent, he's still speaking? You know, silence with God is speaking. God speaks even in the silence. The question is, we, we, if we don't hear him, then we're, we have to ask what? What is God trying to say by not directly saying anything? Right? He, he's, he's, but he knows our predicament. So maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're battling something or dealing with something and just, you know, and you've tossed and turned about it and, and the devil's just got you in, in turmoil and, and, and chaos and you think, God, where are you? I want to tell you something, God is there. 
God knows our circumstances. You think about this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego headed to the fiery furnace. The furnace is so hot when it's opened up, they're thrown in and the people that threw them in died from the heat. You reckon that they might have been saying, now God, we, we've taken our stand. Where are you? To the, uh, you? You know, we use that phrase, went all the way to the ninth hour. But God was there, wasn't he? And by the way, he was through, with them through the fire. He didn't take them out of the fire. And most of the time when we, when our circumstances, our predicament is difficult like that, most of the time, God do it any way he wants to, but most of the time he doesn't take us out, he takes us through. Right? He takes you through. He's there with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I, I tell you, this is also a testimony to me uh, that uh, God knows where you are no matter where you are. If he knows your tossings and he knows your tears, he knows where you are. That's why the psalmist said, where can I go from you? If I go to the depths, you're there. If I go to the highest heights, you are there. There's no place that I can go. Even if I, what he, the psalmist was saying in that passage was, even if I don't sense you in the lowest place or the highest place, I know you're still there. There's no place I can go that you are not. And so God knows our predicament. Um, uh, then let's look over at the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 43. Let's see here. Find what I'm looking for here. Okay. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse and army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a, a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, and now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness. Here's what, number two, a lesson we see reflected in the book of Esther, and that is, God will, you, do you know the answer? God will make a way. Let's put that A right here. God will make a way. Uh, and, you know, we, we sometimes sing a song that says, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. And the Bible tells us that. It'll make a way through the wilderness. So your predicament might feel like a wilderness, but the good news is God will make a way. And that's what we see in Esther, don't we? Now, if, you're, if you didn't know the story of Esther and you didn't know how it all turns out, you'd be going, let's say it was a movie. You'd be going, how's this thing going to work out? How, there, there's no way they get out of this mess. But God made a way. See? And that's still true for our lives. God will make a way. Now, some of you, I wish we had time. I'd go around this room and say, tell me a time when God made a way and you didn't know how God would make a way. Because we've all been there, right? And again, you may be there tonight. You may be saying, I don't know how God's going to do it. But he's, all, he's made a way in the past. He'll make a way in my tomorrow. 
That's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worries on its own. And that's true, isn't it? And by the way, if you want to start worrying about tomorrow, watch, just watch the news. It'll mess you up, won't it? See? So just if you, if you want to worry, and some of you are pro- professional worriers, then do that. Or you can say, today, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in. I've got life and breath. And so today I will rejoice in the Lord. That's what, and that's, a, that's written by a man who's sitting in prison. You know? So this is the day that God will make a way. I don't know how he's going to do it. I've had that happen so many times, Alice and I, uh, so many times in our life where God made a way. We didn't know how he's going to do it, but he did it. And it's fun to look back. It's not so fun while you're there. <laughs> but hopefully as we mature in the faith, we become more confident in God making a way, right? You know, when you're younger in the faith, you might, you might say, this can never work out. But when, the older it should be true, the more mature in the faith we get, we should be able to look and say, God will make a way. How do you know that? Because I got mileage. And he's done it. I've watched him. He's done it. So, uh, if, if, God, if, if God will make a way, there's some responsibilities that we have, all right? And again, that's the book of Esther, God making a way. So go to Hebrews chapter 12. This is one of my favorite New Testament passages. Therefore, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising uh, the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Those are two fantastic verses. And again, one of my favorite passages. I've preached it many times uh, over my 40 years in ministry. I have preached this many times uh, because it points us to a couple of very powerful, practical truths that if we believe God will make a way, we need to understand. And the first is, well, by the way, the, the scenario there is a Colosseum. There, there's this Colosseum. It says, since we are so uh, encompassed by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, do you all know what chapter 11 of Hebrews is? It's the Faith Hall of Fame. And it's all these people, how they believe God and how God did miracles through their life and their circumstances. These are great men and women of faith. I believe, and many, uh, many Bible scholars and teachers believe, that it says, see, that therefore, therefore always references what came before, right? And so it ends by talking about these people and says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are the witnesses in this this spiritual coliseum we're running in. It's the people in, church, uh, in uh, chapter 11. And here's the message. They did it, so can you. If they did it, so can you. God made a way because of their faith. God made a way uh, uh, for them. He'll make a way for you. And he tells us a couple of things, I, I think, in, in effect. If, if, God, if we believe God will make a way, 
even though we don't see the way. And by the way, that analogy in that we read just a moment ago in Psalms also, and I mean in Isaiah, reflects um, uh, Israel going across the Red Sea. You know, and okay, well, so what are two things, if God will make a way, what are two things um, that are necessary for us? Number one, we must remain, what would you say? Faithful. We must remain faithful. And faithfulness is not about what we can see. We remain faithful because God will make a way. Do you remember what Mordecai said to Esther? Esther, if you don't step up, when God will raise somebody else up to do it. What was he saying? God is going to make a way. So, I'm not here to say, if you don't do it, what are we going to do? God will, find, God will make a way. I'm here to say, you and I have to be faithful. Does that make sense? And so, our responsibility, if we say, God will make a way in my predicament, my circumstances, then my responsibility, first and foremost, is to run the race faithfully. It's to... Um, to run that uh, race full of, of faith uh, to God. And, and so he says, uh, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of, uh, of our faith. So we must remain faithful. That is, you stay in the race. You don't try to drop out. Um, by the way, this is a race that you, you can't really quit. But you can get out of your lane. Okay, it is it is a race you can win because it's designed for you. And so you have to be faithful. You you are faithful in your lane. That's the idea. You're running. You stay in your lane. You're faithful. All right. And then verse two tells us that we must remain. Focused. How do you how do you stay faithful? Not by putting your eyes on your circumstances. Who do you put your eyes on? Jesus, he says right here, fixing our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. So it isn't just be faithful for faithful's sake. Be faithful by focusing your eyes on Jesus. So you can run, you can run the race. Do you know, um, I read about, they did, a, they did a, um, a study of people's ability to walk in a straight line. And they blindfolded them and they put them in this big field. Now listen to this. They put them in a big field. Before they asked them, how many of you believe, uh, we want you to go to that point right over there across the field. How many of you believe you can walk a straight line to that point? Did you know all of them said, oh, yeah, that's not a problem. Understanding they'd have a blindfold on. <laughs> they went anywhere but that place. They were all over the field. And they all thought they were walking straight, a straight line. Right? They took the blindfolds off. No problem. As long as they fixed their eyes on the point. But the fact is, 
even without a blindfold, if you don't fix your eye on the destination, guess what? You will wander. Um, that's why when you're driving down the road, messing with your cell phone when you shouldn't be, and you suddenly look up and say, wow, I'm, I'm over here, and you thought you were still moving straight. I know none of y'all do that. You just stay at the red light until it changes back red. But I'm not bitter at anyone. You can blow your horn. I can't. But I'm not bitter. Well, the point is, if you're going to be faithful, you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. And you do, you're faithful because you know, I, I believe God will make a way. So I'm going to remain faithful even if I don't see how it's going to work out. Are you all with me? And so I remain faithful to Him. Because I do have a track record of Him bringing me through. So that helps me remain faithful right now. That helps me trust Him. That helps me walk by faith. And not by my sight, that is physical sight, but my spiritual sight stays focused on Him. Right? And so, we're going to stop there. My time is gone, but I'll get these two next week. And, and there's a very good chance that we'll finish up. I just one section in chapter 9. And, um, but, but so... I think these are life-changing lessons from the book of Esther. That if we, we take it and we forget the whole story, but we remember some lessons that we get, that God knows our predicament, no matter how bad it may seem, God knows it, and that God will make a way where we don't see a way with our eyes. Even our circumstances argue against God making a way. But we remain faithful because He has in the past, He will in the future. And because I trust Him to do that, I'll keep my eyes on Him and not on the gallows that they're building. Not, not the gallows that they're building over there. I'm not going to keep my eyes on that. I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. See? Great book. Great book. We'll come back, finish it up, uh, I think, uh, next week. Any questions or comments before we go tonight?